Good morning, saints. Oh, I love that text, don't you? What a powerful, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. I want to welcome you as well as our viewing and listening audiences and those watching at Camp Osable. I understand some are up at our summer camp watching and tuning in. So uh, praise the Lord and God bless you and what you're doing and continue to do for our young people there. Um, I, I was telling somebody here, just, I, it just dawned on me, I live in Cedar Lake. How many of you here live in Cedar Lake in the area? I, I should have gotten this earlier. I mean, I've been here for a few years, but I, I, I'm looking at the weather this week and I'm thinking it really isn't normally like this here. I think that people who come to camp meeting probably think it just rains and is cloudy for 342 days out of the year. It really isn't that way, but camp meeting, we get hit. And that's in part because the enemy really doesn't like what's happening at camp meeting, which is a really kind of exciting, isn't it? I mean, if the enemy was happy with what was happening at camp meeting, that wouldn't be a good sign. Uh, but praise the Lord that He is among us. His Spirit is with us. He has a message for us this morning. And I want to pray that He enable me to deliver it correctly and for us all to hear and receive it. So bow your heads with me, if you would, please, as I pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Father, I thank you again for another new day of life, a day in which we can come to know you better and your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, and a day when we can better understand how to share him with those who don't know him. Now, Father, we, we don't want to just be hearers of the word, deceiving ourselves, but we want to be doers of your word. So, Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to respond this morning, for we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled the series we're going through, Going the Distance, as I have shared, because I really believe this is the generation that can see Christ come in the clouds of glory. And today's message I've entitled, Identifying Your Superpower. Did you know you have a superpower? You have a superpower, and we're going to talk about it today, and it may not be what you thought it was. I want to review a little bit of what we looked at yesterday. Yesterday, we were talking about righteousness by faith, justification by faith, and we looked at the story of Abraham. Well, before we got there, we looked at what righteousness is in the Bible. Righteousness is what's right according to God's idea. We learned that righteousness is defined by God's Ten Commandment law, that it reaches beyond the outward actions to the very heart. We learned that righteousness encompasses our thinking, our feeling, and our acting. We learned that righteousness is required for heaven, and we learned that we have absolutely none of it. But, we also learned that God does have it. He's full of it. God alone is righteous, and He offers that righteousness to us by faith. And the Apostle Paul, using the story of Abraham, the father of the faithful, illustrated what that saving faith looks like believing that God is able to raise the dead to life and call into existence things that never had an existence before and that whatever He promises, He's able to perform. Believing like that appropriates to us the righteousness of Christ. When we believe God like that, not considering our personal weaknesses and shortcomings, not allowing our circumstances to weaken our trust in His promises, His righteousness will be put to our account just as it was put to Abraham's account. That's what we looked at yesterday, and that's powerful good news, isn't it? Now, here's what I want to get into this morning. As I've said, for those who've been coming, we've been, I've loosely based this on the book Steps to Christ, but one thing I discovered is that Steps to Christ is written in chapters, but those chapters aren't chronological in the Christian experience. They're layered and so, for example, yesterday I was going to go over the chapter on consecration. And then today, faith and acceptance. But the faith chapter, kind of, in my mind, I wanted to get into that step first. Consecration and faith and acceptance and the test of discipleship. All those things are kind of happen together in some ways. 
Yesterday we talked about Abraham's faith. Today I want to talk about the effect of it. What was the effect of Abraham's faith? What do we see when Abraham had that kind of faith that we, we've talked about, that, that unquestioning, unwavering trust in God? When Abraham believed God, what did he do? He obeyed God. And we've got a challenge today in the Christian world, and it's even creeping in among us, that we, we, we don't know where to put obedience. We say, obedience, that, that's legalism, isn't it? I mean, you, you, obeying, that's all about you, and we want to be all about God. But I want you to understand that when Abraham believed God, he obeyed God. That's what James meant when he said, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? We looked at that at the end of the message yesterday. He wasn't saying that Abraham was justifying himself. He was saying that Abraham's act of offering Isaac was the evidence that he had appropriated the righteousness of Christ by faith. We looked at this statement yesterday from Patriarchs and Prophets. It says Abraham's unquestioning what? Obedience is one of the most striking evidences of faith to be found in all the Bible. If there's no obedience, there's no faith. Don't kid yourself. Obedience is the evidence of faith. I like this statement from the book Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2. It says, a man will act out what? All the faith that he has. When we receive Christ, we receive His righteousness, and we are made righteous. Elder E.J. Wagner, in his comments on Romans chapter 3, verse 24, makes this comment. He says, to justify means to what? To make righteous. God supplies just what the sinner lacks. Let no reader forget the simple meaning of justification. Now, we've got people, and they're, they're theological, big theological arguments, and I talked about it a little bit in one of our seminars yesterday, where people say, oh, no, no, justify doesn't mean make righteous. Don't include anything that the Holy Spirit does in us in the work of justification. But that's exactly what happens, is when God declares anything. Some people say, well, just, when God declares us righteous, it's not the same as making us righteous. Answer me this question. When is any time God declared something that it didn't become a fact? He spoke and it was. He commanded and it stood. Why is that on record for us? Why is believing in the six-day creation so important? Because it brings to our understanding that our God can do anything by just speaking it. And the same God spoke this. And when I read this, the same power's in this word. And so Wagner's just building on that point to justify means to make righteous god supplies just what the sinner lacks let no reader forget the simple meaning of justification we're transformed when we accept christ when we believe in christ the life changes notice from steps to christ page 57 if the heart has been renewed by the spirit of god the life will what will bear witness to the fact while we cannot do anything to change our hearts or bring ourselves into harmony with God, we've talked about that, while we must not trust at all to ourselves or our good works, our lives will reveal whether the grace of God is dwelling within us. A change will be seen in the character, the habits, the pursuits. The contrast will be clear and decided between what they have been and what they are. The character is revealed not by occasional good deeds and occasional misdeeds. As long as I have been in, the Adventist, in and out of the Adventist church because I was in and then my family left and came back, and I don't think it's isolated to Adventism, but there are these discussions. This question comes up. I hear it among young people a lot. I think it's, it's a, a little different question with, with the older ones, but I've still heard it. So if I'm like driving down the highway, and I am about to get in a car accident that I'm going to die in, and I say a swear word right before I die, like, am I going to heaven or hell? You ever hear that? You ever remember asking those kind of like, I don't know what to say about that. Is God that, that petty? And I don't want to demean it or, or belittle what I want to say. I don't want to diminish any wrong act. 
But God doesn't count us out. As one of my mentors, Pastor Dave Grams, used to say, God doesn't kick us out of the shower when we drop the soap. And this is what Ellen White is saying. It's not the occasional good. God didn't say, oh, look, you messed up. And like the Pharisees were putting the scales out and saying, well, I have 27 good deeds and I have, oh, I only have 26 bad deeds. I think I'm doing pretty good. It doesn't work that way. What is the tendency of the life? It's not the, the act here and there. What's your heart like? What are your motives like? The character is revealed. The character is revealed. Not formed by occasional good deeds and the occasional misdeeds, but the tendency of the habitual words and acts. A person who has committed themselves to Christ is going to live a different kind of life. In Christ's Object Lessons, page 311, it says this, By His perfect obedience, He has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. Do you believe that? You understand what that's saying. I want to make that clear. I mean, there, this, this is another thing today. We talk about letting go and letting God. God has to do it all. God does do it all. You know how? He works through you and me to choose the right thing, and he empowers us. You know, people say, I'm never going to be, obey, be, able to, be able to obey God. He's going to have to do it for me. Notice his perfect obedience. By his perfect obedience, he's made it possible for us to obey. The life is transformed by Christ. When we submit ourselves to Christ, we're going to talk more about what that means today. The heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul is saying? Galatians chapter 2. I am crucified with Christ and I what? I no longer live. Who does live? Christ. Where does he live? In me. In the life which I now live in the in, in, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought in captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garments of his righteousness. Talk about putting on the robe of righteousness. And I, that's why I told you I didn't like that, that picture, because you're going to cover it all up. Like, oh, it's all there. I'm still this same sinful being. It just doesn't look like it because this trick God did with smoke and mirrors. No. The point that I want to be clear, and this is made clear in the chapter, The Test of Discipleship, in Steps to Christ. The test of discipleship is obedience. The evidence of conversion is a changed life. I want you to imagine for a minute that I came in here tonight, this morning rather. I came in this morning. I'm running a little bit late. I go longer on song service. I don't know where the speaker is. Finally, I come rushing in. I'm all bedraggled. My sleeve is hanging off on my suit here. My suit's all torn up. I've given this illustration before. I need to, have an, I need to buy a ratty old jacket to help visualize, you know? And, and everything, you know, I'm all tattered, and, and I've got scars, and, and I come in, and I say, oh, whew, I'm so sorry I'm running late. You won't believe what happened. You know, it's rainy out. And the roads are a little slick, and I, I was coming, you know, the thing is my car, my car bro broke down out there on the corner of M46, and so I had to walk the rest of the way. And the problem is, you know, having the sermon and everything to go through, I just, I had a lot going on in my head, and I can get distracted real easily, and I wasn't even paying attention, I should have been, I know, but I wasn't paying attention, and as I was crossing M46, suddenly I heard this loud horn, and I looked, and there was this huge semi just coming for me and I didn't have to I just braced myself for the impact and boom that thing hit me and boy did I roll down the road a ways and uh I, I <laughs> oh you can imagine and so I, I brushed myself off and I got here as soon as I could <laughs> how many of you would believe that story now let me tell you why that's so ludicrous why you wouldn't believe it because you know that nobody could have an encounter with something so big and stay the same. But we got people all the time like, oh yeah, I have Christ, he's my savior. Oh, but your life is just exactly the same as it was before. Yeah, I know, I'm just a sinner. Nuh-uh. It's not what scripture teaches. The Bible says, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One of my favoritest verses. 
you've been here, you know what I'm saying there. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, perhaps one of yours. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Listen, I need to clarify this. Before we come to Christ, the Bible says we're all fallen. We've looked at this. We're born with a fallen nature. When we come to Christ and receive Christ, the Holy Spirit implants in us a new nature. But He doesn't take away the old nature. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And so before you come to Christ, you have one nature and it's just fallen and you can do nothing but sin. But when you come to Christ, now you have two natures and you choose which one you're going to give into. And this is what the Bible means when it says in Galatians 5 that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. This is what Paul means in Romans 7 when he says the good that I want to do, I don't do. But then I realize that it's not me but sin that dwells in me. This battle that goes on between right and wrong. I want to share that just as I'm talking about the changed life. That doesn't mean we don't have struggles. I want to make that clear. But there's a battle that goes on between the flesh and the spirit. And people have, in fact, people have argued this and will probably argue it till Jesus comes. When Paul talks about this man in Romans 7 who wants to do the good and doesn't do it. And they say, and this is getting more and more common, that that's the converted man. And they say that because that's how they go through life. And they say, well, I don't want to believe I'm not converted, so I'm going to believe that that's the converted man. That man in Romans 7 is not converted. And I'll tell you why, and it's very clear. Now, I like what E.J. Wagner says about it. He says he's convicted but not converted. And that's because in Romans 7, he says the good I know to do, but how to perform the good I do not find. That is not true of a converted Christian. Now, the struggle, a converted Christian can still have that struggle. But I've told people that we spend too much time as, as Seventh-day Adventists in Romans 7 and never get into Romans 8. Because at the end of Romans 7, now this is what Paul says at the end of Romans 7. He says, so I with, the, with the, uh, the mind serve the law of God, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. Are you guys aware of this passage? And what I've heard people interpret that to mean is, hey, with my mind I serve the law of God, but I'm going to sin as long as I'm on this earth, so at least in my mind I follow him, but I'm never going to follow him in body. That's not what Paul's saying. Because he goes on to say, who will deliver me from this? He actually says that right before. I thank God through Jesus Christ. And he goes into the life of victory in Romans chapter 8. And the point I'm making there is, there are struggles. We can have that struggle between the flesh and the spirit that Paul describes in Romans 7. But the difference is when we come to Christ, when we receive Christ, we now know how to perform what is good. We now have a new power and we can begin to realize what Paul's saying in Romans 7 at the end there is, with my mind I serve the law of God, with the flesh the law of sin. So I've got to choose which one I'm going to follow, which nature I'm going to follow. If I live, and this is what he goes on to say in Romans 8, if I choose to live according to the Spirit, I can be in harmony with God's will. But if I live according to the flesh, I'm just going to give in to sin. And it comes down now to the matter of choice. I want to clarify something else too. As we're talking about obedience being the test of faith, we say, well, the Pharisees obeyed. I, I hear this all the time. It drives me crazy. The Pharisees did not obey. I mean, really, the, the Pharisees obeyed their ideas of what's right. But Jesus himself had to say, which of you keeps the commandments? You're going about trying to kill me. Stephen said before he was stoned, you've received the law from the direction of angels and have not kept it. Pharisees didn't keep the law. Notice something about obedience from the book Christ Object Lessons again, page 97. The man who attempts to obey the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so will never enter into the what? 
the joy of obedience, he does not obey. Because obedience is not just outward. It's not just outward compliance to a list. When the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across human inclination, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. I want to clarify again, that doesn't mean there aren't struggles between the flesh and the spirit. I mean, there are times when I don't feel like doing what I ought to do. But there are many times when I do, and there's something in me that loves truth and loves God and loves spiritual things. There's another part of me that doesn't, and they battle. But this is talking about people who never find any joy in spiritual things. I have, I've had members come to me. They'll say, Pastor, I, don't, I just don't get it. I mean, I, I, they come in late because if they can get around Sabbath school and still hit the requirement... Right, i got to go to church because it's on the list. How can I stay there the shortest? It's not the Christian life. When the requirements of God are accounted burden because they cut across human inclination, we may know that life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God, and that's what God puts in our hearts in that conversion process. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This will lead us to do right because it is right, because right doing is pleasing to God. So, from the book Steps to Christ, I want you to note this. Obedience is not a mere outward compliance. Obedience, the service and allegiance of love, for that's what it is, is the what? The true sign of discipleship. We do not earn salvation for our obedience. For salvation is the free gift of God to be received by faith, but obedience is the what? It's the fruit of faith. Now, I share all that to get into our superpower. Here's the, here's the challenge. Even with what I just shared, perhaps there's somebody here, perhaps there's somebody viewing or listening who says, you know what, that, that person who doesn't find joy in spiritual things, that's me. Maybe I should interject this this morning. Not maybe, I really should. As Seventh-day Adventist Bible-believing Christians, we really need to be clear on this. Conversion is not a one-time whiz-bang thing. It is an ongoing experience with Christ. Even the great apostle Paul said, I die daily in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. If you die daily and you want to keep on living, what else do you have to do daily? You have to be born daily, born again daily. There's a daily growth that goes on and that must go on. And so when we talk about conversion, there's, a, there's always something that is, that is changing, but there is an initial point where God puts in us that spiritual life. But the reality is that there are many Seventh-day Adventists with their names on the church books who have never been converted. And they struggle, and they try to do the right thing. They try to have devotions, and they try to come to church, and they even attempt Sabbath school sometimes, and maybe, God forbid, they'd even try to come to prayer meeting. But it's hard. You hear me? It's hard. is that the case when they try so hard why doesn't God just convert them my brother Jim and I had this conversation once and we were talking about in our experience I mean I think back to my own conversion I mean there was so much I didn't know there was so much bad stuff I did but God converted me and I suddenly love spiritual things I'm like why won't he do it for them the people will come up to me and say you know I just I don't know what it is maybe I'm not cut out to be Christian I've had people tell me that People aren't cut out to be Christian. But I thought, Lord, why aren't you doing for them what you did in my experience? <clears throat> Comes down to the superpower. You ready for it? Many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? You desire to give yourself to Him, but you are weak in moral power. In slavery to doubt and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. They can't bind anything up. They can't pull you up. 
Everything seems to fail. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence and your own sincerity. Have you ever gone through that before? Maybe, Lord, maybe I'm just, that's the, I'm not cut out to be mindset. And the enemy loves that, comes and plagues us with doubt. And causes you to feel that you cannot, that God cannot accept you. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, I think a popular answer is, look, man, just let go and let God, right? I mean, let, we like passive stuff like that. We talk about surrender. Surrender's a, a, people love the word surrender. Oh, I'm tired of battle and I'm just going to Surrender. We like passive words, but I want you to understand surrender. If you're in a battle, which we are, and you're on one side, and you surrender to the other side, what does that mean practically? Listen carefully. That means you stop taking orders from one commander and start taking orders from another. That means you stop obeying one and you start obeying another. We're always obeying somebody. We want to pass it. Oh, you know, my forfeited pledges, my weakens, my confidence. Yeah, Lord, just what can I do? Here it is. But you need not despair. What you need to understand is the true force of the what? Of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of what? Choice. Already, what's being implied? That perhaps you are not exercising your choice like you could. Notice what it goes on to say. Everything, how much? <clears throat> Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given to men. It is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. Isn't that true? You cannot of yourself give to God its affections. But you can what? Choose to serve him. Listen, saints, the foregone conclusion when I decided to give my life to Christ, I know I can't do it myself. I don't have, per I don't have the strength in me. There's not an ounce of obedience I can render to God. And yet I try. People say, oh, some people say, don't try. Don't try. That's you doing it. No, it's not me doing it. I know it's not me doing it. I figured that out when I had to accept Christ. But listen to me. Accepting Christ doesn't mean you stop trying. It means you, you, you start depending on a different power. You can choose to serve him. I know I can't change my own heart. I know I can't transform my life. I can't transform your life. I can't convert you. You can't convert me. I can't convert the, the person I'm studying with. But I know that when I choose, God will work through that choice and empower me. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the ten lepers. You remember the ten lepers who came to Jesus to be cleansed? And you remember what happened? It's fascinating. They came to be healed of leprosy. And Jesus said, go show yourself to the priests. Now you know in Bible times that lepers lived in leper colonies where they, could not, they were isolated and couldn't be around other people. You know who banished them to the leper colonies? The priests. So here I am with my leprosy. Does Jesus heal it? No. He says, go show yourself to the priest. They're just going to tell me that I've got to go back, right? But no, they go as Jesus directed them to go. And this is what the scripture says. As they went, they were cleansed. Not before. They trusted in the word of Jesus. They put forth effort in that direction and Jesus provided the healing. Same thing that happened with the man by the pool of Bethesda, right? Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk. The man had to put forth his energy and effort, and when he did, he found strength he didn't have before. You can choose to serve him. You can give him your will. He will then work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Thus, your what? Your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of God. Affection will be sent and thoughts will be in harmony with him. 
when you just exercise the superpower God has entrusted every one of you with, the power of choice. Now, I'm going to flesh this out in light of what I was just sharing about the struggles that people have. I want you to go with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 5. This is when Jesus called the first disciples. The Bible says in Luke 5, so it was, verse 1, Luke 5, verse 1, so it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, at your what? At your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will what? You will catch men. Don't miss verse 11. So when they had brought their boats to land, they what? Forsook all and followed him. Now, there's several things in this story that I want to bring out. This is a point in Jesus' ministry where things are going south with the religious leaders. You see, he started out, John the Baptist was preaching, people were stirred. It was a kind of exciting time. If nothing else, out of curiosity. And here's John preaching, and people, masses of people went to hear him, and he's the forerunner for Christ. Christ begins teaching, same kind of interest at first. And so the disciples, they begin going around with Jesus from time to time, and you can read that in prior chapters and in the other Gospels. But they haven't committed to his ministry yet. This is where they become disciples. Luke does not use the word disciple until after this passage. In fact, after this chapter, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So Peter's thinking this all through, right? So let's see. We're following Jesus. It looked like it would be a good, exciting career, a new change of things. You know, he grew up being a fisherman. Only now the religious leaders are wanting to kill him. His forerunners in prison... What are my other career opportunities? Right? He's pondering this, but he knows as a fisherman, at least he has fishing to fall back on, right? Hey, it's okay if I'm not going to follow Jesus. Things are getting heated up there. Maybe I'll just go back to fishing, and I'll make my living that way. So he goes out at night, which is when you catch fish in a clear lake. You don't do it during the day. You don't fish with nets during the day. Any fisherman knows that. Peter knows that. They're fishing at night, only they catch how much? Nothing. What kind of career is fishing for a guy who doesn't catch fish? Not very good, right? So this is all going through Peter's mind, and Jesus knows this. When he comes out that morning, they're cleaning out the nets. Jesus gets into the boat. The crowd's passing him. He wants to get out from the shore just a little bit to give himself some room, and he teaches. Then when he's done teaching, he turns to Peter. He says, hey, okay, Peter, let's go out and catch some fish. Now, Peter's answer does not flesh this out the way that, that it could. You know, we don't get it from, from, from instantly from reading it when he says, uh, Master, we've taught all night and caught nothing nevertheless. It's all real concise. But in essence, what Peter's doing is saying, Jesus, you don't get it. You're a carpenter and I'm a fisherman. You don't catch fish in the clear water of the lake in the daytime. See, we, we fish for, for a living. And I can only imagine that Jesus was just giving him one of those looks with the compassion and yet the earnestness and let's go look and Peter says, nevertheless, to humor you, we'll go out and we'll drop the nets. And you'll see I'm right. 
and you don't know what you're talking about. And they go out. And they drop down the nets. And immediately the nets are full of fish. Not just full of fish, but they're so full that as they try to pull them in, they're like, hey, there's too much for one boat. Hey, guys. And they get the other boat, and both boats begin sinking because of the weight of the fish. And in that moment, Peter stops thinking about fish. And he realizes he's in the presence of one who controls all the forces of nature. And he sees his own unworthiness and his need for Christ, and he falls down at his feet, and he says, depart from me, only he's holding on to him. And the Bible says, Jesus said, listen, from now on you're going to catch men. And the Bible says it was at that point in that experience that they forsook all and followed him. Now, brothers and sisters, understand something this morning that I think is the challenge that so many people run into, that so many church members struggle with. The reason that many are struggling in their spiritual lives and they're not finding success is because they've given part to Christ, but they haven't given all to Christ. Peter and the disciples were going around with Jesus up to this time, but they were not called his disciples yet because they had not forsook all. They had not put him first. We see the same thing at the end of Luke chapter 5, or well not at the end, but verse 27, Jesus goes on, he calls Levi Matthew. Luke 5, 27 says, after these things he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting on the tax, at the tax office, said to him, follow me. So he did what? He left all, rose up, and followed him. This was the turning point at which these men became the disciples of Christ. Now, if you miss everything else I said this morning, get this next point. Christianity begins when my will and Christ's will conflict and I surrender. Everybody does some of God's will some of the time. The most heathen people do some of God's will some of the time. They follow some of the Bible some of the time. They follow some of the commandments some of the time. That's not Christianity. Christianity is being sold out to Christ. Christianity is following Christ, but not following at a distance. You can be in the church for years. And listen, if you grow up as a Seventh-day Adventist, you already go to church on Saturday because it's your custom. And you eat veggie links and all kinds of other stuff. And you know what haystacks are, which nobody else does? If you've ever noticed that? What is that? Like a ta taco salad, isn't that what? No, it's a haystack. And you can know all of that. And yet not be committed to Christ. You can do all that, sit in church every Sabbath. But when your will comes up against Christ's will in certain areas, like something you shouldn't be wearing or something you shouldn't be watching, you're like, yeah, well, I'm going to come to church and I'm going to pay my tithe, but I'm not ready to do that yet. Then you're not ready to become a Christian yet. That's the reality. Because a Christian, a Christian, is somebody who follows Christ and gives all to Christ and surrenders their will to Christ. And until you reach a point in your life, and that point will continue. I became a Christian when I, my will first conflicted Christ and I realized it and I had to say no to me and yes to him, not my will but thy will be done. That was the beginning of Christian life for me. I wish I could say it's the only time I ever had to say that. But it continues, you continue yielding the will as the Lord reveals himself. But that's where Christianity begins. That's where conversion begins. And conversion cannot take place if I've not yielded the will to Christ. The Pharisees had that bad habit. They would do things they knew they shouldn't do, and so they figured, well, I'll just pile up a bunch of other stuff, and if I do extra good stuff over here, then that'll excuse what I'm doing over here. No, because you're only giving half of yourself to Christ, and Christ can't fix half a heart. He needs the whole heart. Messages to Young People says the reason why, so ma why many find the Christian life so deplorably hard, why they are so fickle, so variable, is they try to attach themselves to Christ without first detaching themselves from these cherished idols. 
steps to Christ says desires for goodness and holiness are right as far as they go. But if you stop here, they will avail nothing. Many will be what? Many will be lost while hoping and desiring to be Christians. How is that? They do not come to the point of yielding the will to God. In other words, they do not now choose to be Christians. Devil can't force you to choose and God won't force you to choose. That's your superpower if you choose to use it. But you have to choose to use it. You have to choose Christ. Remember the rich young ruler. The Bible says in the Gospel of Mark, when he saw Jesus, he ran to him. There are people who approach me at camp meeting for different things. Some people will say, hey, Pastor Howard. But some people say, hey, Pastor Howard. Sorry about the camera guy. They always get on me for that. But I had to illustrate. You get what I'm saying? There's a difference. And when the young man, the Bible says he ran to Jesus, what does that express? I mean, he was really interested. He was really eager, and I believe he was. And he came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to enter into life? And of course, Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. That's God. But he says, if you want to enter, enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? Jesus named some that he knew what the answer would be to the question. And the, guy, the young man says, yeah, I do all that already. I've done that since I was young. I grew up in the Adventist church. I keep all those. He said, one thing you lack. Man, I love for the Lord to say there's only one thing I'm short on. One thing you lack. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And the Bible says, incidentally, when Jesus says, come and follow me, what is that? What's that a call to? That young man had the potential of being a disciple of Christ. You know what we know about his life after that? Nothing. It's funny how you have figures in, in history. I think about Moses. The Bible says he forsook the pleasures of sin for a season. Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could have been a king of Egypt. He could have been one of the great pharaohs. He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. Do you even know the name of the Pharaoh who Moses contended with? Ramses II, right? Who came after him? Who has a clue? But the whole world knows who Moses is. The devil tells you, if you take my side, man, I'm going to make you famous. Yeah, right. But in the New Testament, you had a group of the seven sons of Sceva. They're casting out demons. You remember this? And these, 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 these uh, exorcists come, and they're going to cast the demons out of this demon-possessed man. And the demons speak back, and they say, we, we command you to leave in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. You remember this story? Like, they didn't know Jesus personally. They're name-dropping, like Jesus who Paul preaches, but we don't know him. And this is what the demons answered. They said, you know what? Jesus we know, and Paul we know, but who are you? Now, I want you to get clear on this. If these men didn't know Jesus, there's only two masters you can serve. Who were they serving? The devil didn't even know his own servant's name, but he knew Paul's name. The devil's going to tell you, follow me, and you'll be great and famous. I'll give you all that. No, he won't. That rich young ruler went away sorrowful. We don't know what happened other than that besides the fact that he was lost. The book Desire of Ages says, ever after the world was to receive his affection. He had an opportunity to become a disciple of Christ, but that one thing he wouldn't choose. It was within his power. He could have chosen, but he wouldn't choose to let that one thing go. And he never experienced what God wanted to give him. Love the story of the Exodus. This, this story is so illustrative. Paul uses it in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, to kind of illustrate the deliverance from bondage of sin into, into uh, you know, the promised land, deliverance of, of uh, salvation in Christ. But I want you to think about something. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in the story, but if you read about the crossing of the Red Sea, if you look at a map and you realize where the 
uh, children of Israel were in Goshen. And so you would be here. I'm reversing myself. And Canaan is here. Okay, that seems pretty straightforward, right? The Red Sea is here. Hey, that's no problem. We'll just go right over the top of the Red Sea. But when Moses leaves the children of Israel, instead of going here, he comes down here and into the sea. Where is this guy taking us? What's wrong with him? Right? I mean, I, don't, I can only imagine what I would have been thinking. He's probably not asking directions, right? Because he's a guy. And here's Moses going down. Of course, you have the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. But they go down by the sea. Now, the Lord has his reasons, two reasons, in fact, two important reasons. One was that this land up here was Philistia. You know who lived there? The Philistines. You know what the Philistines would have done if the Israelites tried to come through there? They would have totally wiped them out. They never would have made it. And God knew that. So people weren't ready for that. But there was another reason. And the other reason is that he knew that sooner or later the armies of Pharaoh were going to come after them wherever they went. And the only way they could be safe is to destroy the armies of Pharaoh. And there's one way he was going to do it. He's going to do it in the sea. Now they didn't know all this. Just like we don't know a lot of times when God asks us to do something. And he doesn't give us the whole game plan. Not right away. So they come to the sea and they're facing the sea and they're on the, they're on the borders of the sea and they've got a mountain range on the left and a mountain range on the light, right. And if they think about going back, word comes to them that the Egyptian armies are coming. So now where am I going to go? I'm stuck here. I can't go here. I can't go here. I can't go there. And they begin crying out saying, Moses, why have you let us out here to die? You remember that? Who said they were going to die? What, just because you're standing at the border of the sea? Who said you're going to die? No, they assumed that, just like we do. When God tries to give us a direction, we say, Lord, you're, why are you asking me to do this, to go forward, to give up this thing in my life? I'm going to die. Who said you're going to die? You do what I say, and you're going to find deliverance. No, we're there on the border, and God said, Moses, tell the children of Israel, why are you crying unto me? Tell them to go forward. Was there an explanation of how? No, just go forward. God said, go forward. You've got to go forward here. The Bible says, as they went forward and Moses stretched his rod over the sea, the waters parted and they went across on dry land. And when they got to the other side, the Egyptians pursued them into the bed of the sea and God buried their enemies in the sea. There was nobody left to come and take them back to slavery and they were free. And on the other shore, they sang a song, the song of Moses. And it's no accident in the book of Revelation, chapter 15, that the Bible says of those who make it through at the end of time that they will sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. It's a song of experience. But a true experience with God could only be obtained on the other side of the sea. And there may be some of you here this morning, there may be some watching or listening and there's something in your life like that rich young ruler's thing. For him it was covetousness. For you, I don't know what it may be. And you wrestle with spiritual things. You wonder why you're not feeling converted, why you're not more passionate. But yet, there's something you're holding on to. You have not forsaken all. Maybe you've come, as it were, to a Red Sea and there's something in front of you. Just like, I don't know how I can get, live without this thing. And the Lord says, why are you crying unto me? Go forward. You go forward, you choose. Use that superpower and I will show myself powerful on your behalf. And when you get on the other side of that, you will sing the song of victory. But you can't know it this side of the sea. Brothers and sisters, God so much wants us to have that experience in Christ, but he can't give that experience to us if we don't give ourselves to him. And I can't give him a part of me. He can't take divided service, even if he wanted to. It just doesn't work that way. He has to have the whole heart. What is it that you're holding back from him today? What's your Red Sea? I want to finish with this statement. Book Signs of the Times, or uh, Paper Signs of the Times from November of 1892. Let no one rob God of the service he requires. Half-hearted service is of no value. Have we not tried our own way again and again and found it was but foolishness? 
<laughs> have mercy. Isn't it true? In following our independent judgment, have we not virtually said, Lord, I want not thy way, for it does not please me. I want my own way. And if I cannot do as I please, I will not serve thee. And then we wonder why we don't experience the joy of salvation. How many have let go of Christ to follow their own plans? Oh, it's just a little doctrine thing that the church feels is important. We have little lifestyle things, and we just, I watch it all the time. Seventh day Adventists, we're dressing like the world, we're watching what the world watches. And we say, that's not important as long as I focus on my relationship with Christ. Are you serious? You're not focused on relationship with Christ when you're ignoring what he's telling you to do. I'm going to tell you right now, brothers and sisters, if I told my wife I was focused on my relationship with her, but I ignored everything she told me to do, I'd have a relationship with her. It wouldn't be a good one. How many have let go of Christ to follow their own plans? Did Christ, the majesty of heaven, have his way? Behold him in travail of soul in Gethsemane, praying to his Father. What forced those blood drops of agony from his holy brow? Oh, it was the sins of the whole world upon him. It was separation from the Father's love that forced from his pale, quivering lips the cry, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Three times was the prayer offered, but was followed by nevertheless not what? Not my will, but thine, O God, be done. Even Christ our Master, not my will, but thine be done. This must be what? Our attitude. Not my will, but thine, O God, be done. This, this is true conversion. It's left for you and me to choose. Brothers and sisters, how many of you want to say today, I want to choose Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh Father, I thank you for giving us the power of choice, for guarding that power of choice, for empowering that power of choice. But Lord, so often we use it just for our own selfish gain. And then we wonder why we're lacking the passion, the joy of salvation. Lord, I pray again as you've spoken through clay today, that the Spirit of God would enlighten our hearts and our minds, would inspire us to put forth the effort to choose your will. We can't change our hearts. We can't change our affections. We can't transform our lives, but we can choose. We can put our feet in the water, and then, Lord, the waters can part, and we can go across, and we can have victory in Christ. And sing the song of experience. Lord, that's my desire for each one here today. And I want to pray that we can sing that experience here on this earth. And Lord, one day soon we can sing it together in the kingdom of God as we cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus and say he is worthy. Thank you for hearing and answering, for we ask and pray it in his name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.